Um, I have a, um, a question for you. Sure. I, I, I listened to the, uh, the airway podcast and I, I think I kind of, um, answered a, a question, um, in the, in the mindset that I've already had my kind of my gear laid out and I'm, I'm ready to do an anesthetic. I think that the question was, is, you know, what do you do to kind of prepare, um, for your, for your anesthetic? And I, and I think, my answer was, is I, I like, Oh, I eyeball what I have. And I, you know, I've done it for so long. I can just kind of see what I need, but I, I don't think that's what you were asking me. I think you were asking me kind of like, like the whole entire, um, preparation that goes into, um, what I do to get everything set up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's what I was hoping I, for. Yeah. So if I could answer that question, uh, I don't know if you can, splice it into the end of that podcast. But I, I was like, I guess I was driving home. I was like, Oh, that's what he was asking me. And the, the answer I gave was, Oh, you know, I eyeball it, which was uh, not necessarily, no, that's absolutely not the answer. So I um, typically when, um, so like the, if, if I'm working out of my, my ruck, my ruck, that packing list takes, takes months to develop. Um, and you have to think through every single piece of a, of an anesthetic. And then you have to think of some branch plans that you might get into. And then you have to think of, okay, well, I have a, I'm going to base a lot of my stuff off of a hundred kilo guy, um, or a hundred kilo patient. And do I have what I need to take care of somebody for 24 hours? So I, I kind of base my packing list off of that thought process um, and more geared towards a, a trauma anesthetic versus, say, taking care of somebody that's got um, severe coronary artery disease. So that packing list gets made and developed, and then you pack it. You see how much it weighs and how much cube and space it takes up. And you get an idea of for this cube in space, I can give you one anesthetic and I can hold the patient for 24 hours. Um, and then what I've done is, is I've kind of come up with a scenario like, okay, it's a, you know, a 20 to 30 year old trauma patient and they're, you know, shot in the abdomen or in, in the chest. And then I just take a, and just cause I don't want to waste class eight, I have a box and I just, have my ruck next to that box and I take every piece out of my ruck that I'm going to use for that case. And then by the end, I look at my ruck and go, okay, what do I have left? And then is that enough? Is it realistic that I can take care of that patient for 24 hours? So that way I can go to whoever I'm working with and go, yes, I can do this and I can do it for 24 hours. Okay. So now that's kind of the development of that packing list. Once that packing list is um, developed, a quick question before you get into that, yeah. I guess what scenarios are you, what are like the common scenarios or common um, issues that can come up that you're always packing for? So the, so the common, the, the, the my rub is geared towards somebody who's uh, a trauma patient who's either got penetrating trauma or, um, 
blunt force trauma to the chest or abdomen. Um, and that I am working with a surgeon and I have to, um, anesthetize the patient, secure the airway so that they can then reach into, into the chest or into the cavity and apply an internal tourniquet, right? That's what we're there for. So, um, if, if a tourniquet can be put on a leg, great, you've got time. But if, if you're, um, in a scenario where you can't put a tourniquet on the aorta, whether it's in the abdomen or up in the chest, well, that's what you need a surgeon for. And I go typically hand in hand with the surgeon. I need to do my uh, portion so they can go in and and do their portion. So that's kind of the scenario I'm looking at is somebody, a hypovolemic trauma patient who's going to require resuscitation with blood. We also have, I also have a kit for somebody that's got a head injury as well, but I mean, it's just hypertonic sailing straight off of the JTS, um, guidelines of, of what you would use that for. Mm. So that's kind of the, the scenario where it's myself, it's, it's a surgeon, um, uh, my ruck is geared towards, uh, an anesthetic where they're, um, hitting the, in the chest or in the abdomen and, I need to, to anesthetize them while the surgeon gets into the chest or abdomen and fixes what they need to fix while I'm resuscitating them and putting all the blood back in. Does that kind of make sense? Yep. Understood. So okay. your, your whole scenario is based around a, a hypotensive multi-system trauma patient. Correct. Yes. So once that packing list is developed and then you've kind of war gamed it um, and you're like, okay, I like, this, this is reasonable. This packing list is going to do what I think it's going to do. Then, then you pack it. Um, and once it's packed, I would probably say I go through that ruck, each line item on that ruck, at least once a month at a minimum, I touch every single piece. And then, um, while deployed, um, say for example, um, I fall in on a ruck and most of uh, the people I work with, we all kind of have the same packing list. But I, in that, even if that anesthesia provider is somebody I work with and I trust, I touch every single thing in that ruck and I make sure it's there. And I look at expiration dates and I'm um, and I also take a kind of a list of what don't I have. So that all goes into where once I get to where I'm going to do this anesthetic and I start taking stuff out of my ruck and I'm hanging it up and I'm going, okay, this is where I start to eyeball this stuff. I'm like, yep, I've got a, I've got B, I've got C, I got D I've got everything I need. I got my monitors. I got my suction. I've got my Ambu bag. I've got my airway kit. I've got my induction drugs. I've got it all ready to go. And then I will mentally rehearse a patient coming into the, um, wherever we are. So I'll mentally rehearse exactly what I'm going to do. The patient lands on the table. We go through the quick trauma assessment, trauma naked, reassess all the interventions, looking for stuff that was missed. Most likely, um, if this was done in the dark and now we have white light, we might be able to discover, um, further injuries. And then once, so it's, it's all very rehearsed in my, in my, my brain, but the, the preparation for this, is happened years ago. So uh, that's the, the eyeball portion of it takes place after everything is all set up 
in my trauma bay or wherever I'm going to be. And then I can just quickly glance at everything and go, yep, I got everything I need. I'm good to go. Is that kind of, is that, I think that's a better answer than, yep, I just eyeball it and I'm, I'm ready to go. Yep. Oh, no, absolutely. I think we kind of squeaked out a, a, a decent answer, but I think this is a lot better. Um, so obviously you have years of experience doing this. And so um, that kind of rehearsal of uh, issues that would come up is kind of old hat to you. Um, you know, somebody like me who's fairly new coming into this or don't isn't uh, doesn't have the benefit of that education and experience. Um, I guess what kind of situations or or um, issues would come up that you would definitely want to have a at least a war game uh, plan to uh, to address? I so I I think one of the most challenging things in any trauma patient in in the order of precedence is access IV access. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and, and IO is great and IOs are, um, attempt in my mind, it's a temporizing measure and you have to be a predator, um, like an apex predator to upgrade your access. So, um, my, I have, you know, received patients, um, you know, sometimes with a sternal IO working or not working. And then if I, you you know, you just, I, you can see the patient, you can see their, you know, they're, they're modeled, they're clamped down, you know, you're probably not going to get a peripheral IV and you immediately put a humor. I just, from where I am, I usually will put a humoral, um, IO in depending upon if there's upper extremity, uh, injury or not, or potentially replace the, uh, um, if there's, it, it, it these conversations also take place with the surgeon I'm working with because they understand, they understand as well that um, usually the thing that takes the most time is getting some sort of an upgraded access from an uh, sternal IO or a humeral IO. Um, My primary plan is, is I, I I have um, what's called a RIC catheter. It's a rapid infusion catheter. And it's a, it's like a, it's a, it's a large bore, peripheral peripheral um iv catheter but you need a um a at least a 20 gauge iv already in place so a 20 gauge or bigger and this rick catheter comes with a it's like a cell dinger technique you open up the rick catheter it's got a guide wire so if you have a 20 gauge iv in place you can thread that 20 gauge or the the guide wire through the 20 gauge, remove the 20 gauge IV. And then you make a stab incision, just like you were going to be doing a central line. And then the Rick catheter has an introducer, same thing as a central line, but this is going to be in an AC or potentially uh, external jugular vein. And now you've got a lot. It's essentially, essentially it's like a seven French catheter that you're putting in uh, somebody's AC. So that's a lot quicker than trying to um, uh, try to get central access. So every RIC catheter I have, I have a 20 gauge IV taped to it. And if that doesn't work, um, typically a subclavian uh, and somebody who's extremely hypovolemic is easier to get depending upon where the trauma is. And then if somebody is extremely hypovolemic, like an internal jugular is, is challenging, 
Um, it's specifically, and it's also challenging without um, having ultrasound if if somebody's IJ is collapsed. Yeah. So I would say um, everybody should have a plan for um, trying to upgrade access, whatever that plan is, whatever you're the best, whatever your best widget is, I would have it. Um, I, I usually will speak until I'm blue in the face to medics when I'm like, when was the last time you put an IV in somebody who is dehydrated that has, um, poor veins. And the, the answer is usually it's been a while. So I would, I would highly encourage guys to seek out, um, the ability to go find somewhere to get IVs and dehydrated patients, whether it's a pre-op area, because all those patients are typically um, dehydrated because they've been you know, fasting for eight to 12 hours or whatever it is. They usually will go to bed at night and then wake up and not drink anything. And they come in and they see us. And we're always trying to put those IVs in people's hands. And that can be a challenge. So I, uh, it's probably one of the most important skills that does not get as much attention as it should, because we just like, Oh, we're just going to go to the IO. That's great. But if, until you actually try to transfuse a couple units of blood through IOs, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, another opportunity <laughs> would be uh, Sunday morning or Monday morning, uh, in the team room. Yeah. Well, there, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I think, um, that, that would be a, one that I, and even myself, like, you know, we're lucky enough to have our pre-op um, RNs and LPNs and medics that work with us and they're putting in the IVs in for us. So sometimes when I'm on a break shift, if I'm just doing breaks um, where, I, you know, I'm just helping anesthesia providers out, I'll go into that pre-op area and just start IVs um, just to get the, the, the muscle memory and just make sure I'm still doing what I preach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing too is, is I think, um, if you're looking at doing big now that we're all, a lot of us are moving to, um, you know, low tighter whole blood, um, whether it's warm or cold stored, um, or when I say warm, fresh, right off, you know, taking it right off of somebody, the amount of I've, blood tubing you need, um, is it's, it's more than you think. So usually those filters will get clogged up um, after, you know, two to three units. So if your plan is, is if you have 10 units or 20 units of whole blood with you, you should have the IV tubing to match that. Um, because once your IV tubing and that filter gets clogged up, you're, there's no way to deliver that blood. Yeah. Um, one quick uh, question on that. So... How do you how do you prep your lines? Do you run just uh, blood through the line and prep it that way, or do you run saline uh, to get things ready and then save the blood for when you actually discover he needs it or not? Yeah, that's typically what I'll do is is I will prep um, my tubing with saline. And then once we get the call that um, we're going to get a casualty, the very last thing I do is spike the blood. So that way I'm not wasting that unit of blood. Um, I typically will have all of my medications drawn up before we go out, depending upon what the logistics train looks like. If I've got a significant um, supply of medication back at where we're at, then I will pull up my induction drugs. I'll pull up my antibiotics, my TXA, I'll, and I have that all just ready to go. Um, and then I, 
once again, it, it all depends upon the logistics train, but I typically will have everything ready to go except for that spike in that blood once I hear we're getting somebody. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of just been my, kind of my, what I've done. Right. No, I, I, I definitely understand, I guess, why, you know, initially you didn't maybe think of it is because like, this is something you do all the time, you know, as a living. And so it's definitely hard to uh, think back, uh, you know, maybe when you were training up, you know, all those little steps, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, yeah, it was funny. I, I heard that question and I heard my answer. I was like, no, that's definitely not the answer you were looking for. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I hope I get an opportunity to uh, maybe uh, answer that question a little bit better than I had. No, that was perfect.